Well, hey, good morning, Zion. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. Hey, do me a favor. Turn to your neighbor and say, God's got something. Say it again. Say, God's got something. Now, I want the other person to, and I want the other person to turn to him and say, for you. God's got something this morning for all of us, because here's the thing. How many are you coming this morning expecting God to move? If you're honest, I think some of us aren't, and that's okay. Uh, because here's what happens, is a lot of times we'll come in, and we forget that the purpose of church is not just to do it, but it's because we want to we encounter Jesus. Does that make sense? I think some of us, we fall in the habit of doing things, and one of the things, and I said, shared this first service, and, and uh, here's what happens. We sing songs, believing we're just singing, or maybe we're not participating at all because we don't like singing, but we sing songs, and it's just something we do. How many of you have found yourself singing a song and not really believing what you're saying or singing? Come on, let's be honest. Am I the only person? Like I was, and I shared this first service, and, and again, I, I'm saying this partly for prayer. I appreciate prayer. Uh, so I lost my voice back in December, and uh, it still hasn't returned. It's been eight weeks, and I've been to the doctor, and he thinks it might, it's probably something, uh, acid reflux or something like that. But to be honest, I'm a little concerned about it. And singing for me, I started off in ministry and worship. Music was one of the ways, it's one of the, the ways that I connect with the Lord the most. It's something that for me allows me to, um, to give back to the Lord. And I haven't been able to sing for eight weeks now, and it's driving me nuts. For some of you, like Jason, I haven't sung in 12 years. Um, but for me, singing is one of those ways that I connect. And as we were singing first service, I found myself, because I can't sing right now, uh, as Lily was leading us in worship, which, by the way, can we just give it up for what God is doing through our youth? Not for Lily. Lily wants to be used by the Lord. God is raising up a generation. I'll tell you right now, we got kids that are in their teens, that are entering into their 20s, that God is moving and stirring, in, and we're starting to see some of that come in, and I want to see more of that. Do you? I want to see God raise more of that. I want to see all youth up here at some point. Um, because here's the thing, it's out of the generation what God is doing there. God is going to birth something new in our church, and he's already starting to do it. So thank you for your obedience, Lily, and, and a heart that loves Jesus. But here's the thing, so we were singing uh, the king of my heart, and if we're honest with each other, I think we can all say that all of us struggle with letting Jesus be the king of our heart. And yet here I am, I'm singing a song going, let the king of my heart, and I'm like, but I don't really want Jesus to be king, and, and there's that point where you know, he's never going to let us down. And I'll be honest, as we were worshiping during first service, a part of me was really struggling with believing in God's goodness because I know God can heal. I'm like, God, why aren't you healing this? You know, this is one of the things, one of the ways that I love you most. And I felt like the Lord was saying, Jason, I'm trying to teach you something in it and I'll heal it in my time when I want to. And even if he doesn't heal it, can I still declare that God is good? Part of the reason why we worship, why we sing, even when we don't believe things is because we want to believe them. It's because we, we, even when we don't feel it, we want to believe and trust that God is good. And that's actually, that, that's what a sacrifice of praise is. A sacrifice of praise is actually coming to God within a time when you're like, God, I don't know if you're really going to show up, but I'm going to praise you regardless. It's a sacrifice for you to admit it because you're acknowledging there's a pain point of you going, God, I don't know if you're real or not, or if you're really going to do these things, but I'm trusting you. I am sacrificing praise right now. Does that make sense? And maybe someone needed to hear that. I know I needed to hear it this morning as we were worshiping. Um, so all that being said, if, if that's you, um, please know that even if you don't mean it in that moment, if your desire is to want to mean it, God still hears it and it still blesses and honors God. Uh, for those of you who are new here or new-ish, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors. For those of you online, thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad you're here. Uh, yesterday, we had our Love and Respect conference. We had about 80, 80 people, uh, 40 couples. How many of you went to Love and Respect yesterday? 
Awesome, yeah. Can we give a thank you to our adult ministries team and Jennifer Colby and Marriage Ministry? It's a great conference. So here, I got some giveaways. Um, so Love and Respect is by Dr. Emerson Egrich. It's a great conference. Um, and there are a lot of great marriage resources. If you've been married for a year or less, raise your hand. A year or less? Do we have a year or less in here somewhere? All right, come here, come here, come here. Take a pic, take a pic. You've been w- married way longer than a year, dude. I saw, I saw, no, I saw your hand up. I saw, and, and he's like, you just want free stuff, man. Take a pic, take a pic. What do you want? He's, he was like, I don't know, just give me a book. All right, hey, give it up for the one. All right, if you've been married, yeah. If you've been married for five years, five years or less, five years. We have a five year? Five years or less, that means a year, five years or less. You can raise your hand. We have, we have, come here, come here. Let me get a book. Here, I'm just going to, um, okay, if, uh, while they're walking up, because they're way in the back, they're Lutheran, it's all good. We're Lutheran, man, we all sit in the back, we get it, man. If you've been married for 10 years, 10 years or less, raise your hand. Come here, come here, pick a book, grab a book, any book, any book. There you go, okay, uh, last one, okay, if you've been married for 30 years, 30 years, keep your hand up, 30 years, anybody 40 years, 40 years or less, 40 years or less. 36, 38, <laughs> 39, wait, I went backwards, 37, <laughs> 36, 35, any 35, come here, all right, come here, take a pic, here, take a pic, take a pic, here you go, let's give it up for our married couples, here you go, guys, <clears throat> all right, so uh, here's the thing, so we're continuing in our Galatians series, and uh, and we're looking at the Spirit's power, I want to share a statistic with you. Now, here's the thing about statistics. One, they're boring as all get out. Two, you can't really trust them because 80% of statistics are made up. I, always, I had a lot of set last time, too. Uh, but the third one is, is that at the end of the day, do, do they really matter? And the truth is, I think they do. So Arizona Christian University did a study in 2021 of Christians. Now, here's the thing. Christians is bigger than just Lutheran. Catholics are considered Christian. Uh, you have people who love Jesus that are Christian. Out of Christians, uh, all Christians, 58% do not believe that the Holy Spirit is God, but rather just a symbolic representation of his power or strength. Think about that. 58% of Christians do not believe G- that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, has a personality that you can have a relationship with him. Now, of our tribe, we're part of the evangelical church. 62% of evangelicals don't believe that the Holy Spirit is God. And therefore, you can't have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where I bring this up. It's that this actually matters because last week we talked about this introduction to the Holy Spirit. And Paul, who Paul is an apostle of Jesus, he wrote a majority of the New Testament, over half of it. And whenever Paul talks to churches in every church that he addresses, anytime there are issues, there are two solutions to the issues in any church. You guys ready for these? Two solutions. First one is the gospel. He always points to the importance of understanding the Jesus gospel, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus came, lived a sin, sinless life, died on a cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, and that we have, he has come to reconcile us back to the Father, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done. It's God's goodness that saves us, not our own. Amen? So the power of the gospel is the one solution when churches or Christians are struggling. The second is the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about the Holy Spirit all the time, and apparently Paul understood that the Spirit was more than just symbolic, a symbolic force, a representation of God's purity, but the Holy Spirit is a driving force meant to be something that allows the Christian, the church, to be the church that, and the people that God has called us to be. 
Well, how can we do that if we think that the Holy Spirit doesn't exist or is just a symbolic representation of his purity and power? And, and I'll, I'll tell you, part of the reason why we struggle with this is it's our language. Now, I, I have this really bad habit, and it, and it is a bad habit. Uh, whenever I drive and my gas tar- tank starts to hit empty, I don't fill it up. I see it as a challenge. Do I have anybody else who, when they see the gas tank getting near empty, I'm like, yeah, bring it on, right? I am ready to go. I'm, let's go. Bring it on, gas gods. I don't care. Let's, let's do wins. And, and here's the thing. My wife, on the other hand, my wife and I will be driving. She'll be in the passenger seat, and she'll look over and be like, you need gas. I'm like, why are you looking at my tank, lady? Mind your own business. This is my gas tank. I got it. And here's, because my wife, she gets the quarter of a tank. She's like, I better fill up. Me, now here's the thing. Remember back in the old days, before they were electronic screens, you saw the gas tank, right? And you started seeing, once you got to the red, I was like, party on, let's go, right? Now, they give you a warning. You know what I'm talking about? That 50 miles, all of a sudden it says low fuel. Everybody say low fuel, right? That's the warning. But then it tells you that now it says you got 50 miles until empty. And then it goes to 40 miles until empty. And the entire time, I'm like, I got this. And my wife's panicking, holding on to things like we're going to run out of gas. And, and then all of a sudden, because the gods of gas or whoever it was that made my car, some magician who made my car, whatever, whoever made my car, they decided they wanted to be control freaks. And now once you hit 25 miles or less, they don't tell you when you're going to run out of gas. It just says low fuel. And I just say, bring it on, right? And here's the deal. 99.9% of the time, I've never run out of gas. That point one is the one my wife focuses on. Those two times in 20 years, you ran out of gas before, yeah, like 10 years ago. But here's the thing, eventually, what do I do? I don't want to risk it, especially if I'm driving long distances or it's cold outside. Eventually, I'll give in. Here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. For years, I believed (coughs) that the Holy Spirit was like the gasoline in my car. That I could not do life without the power of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, I was taught this, is that as a Christian, you can do nothing without the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem with that. How many of you know good people who are not Christians who are more loving than some Christians you know? Do they have the Holy Spirit? I can make good decisions apart from the Holy Spirit. You can do good things. The question is not whether or not they're good things, are they God things? You don't have to be a Christian to be more loving or kind. But even Jesus doesn't describe the Holy Spirit as gas for your car. When Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, and I shared this last week, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, the helper. Now, a few years ago, several years ago, I, brought, I bought a hybrid. How many of you guys have a hybrid or have ever driven a hybrid, right? Okay, a hybrid car, what does it do? You drive in gas until eventually you hit that sweet spot and the electric takes over. You're no longer re- relying on the power of the gas you are now operating in the power of a different source. That's how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit. It's not that you can't do things without the Holy Spirit. It's that the Holy Spirit brings a different force, a different energy, a different source of power. Now, I'll be honest. Every analogy will break down somewhere. Like last week, I talked about Neapolitan ice cream, like the Trinity. Every analogy will break down, including this one. But you guys get the idea. Most of us operate out of our own power, our own gas. Let's call that the flesh. That's how Paul refers to it, the flesh. And you can do good things in the flesh, but they're not God things. They're things that you're doing in your effort, in your power. The Holy Spirit, which if you were here last week or if you weren't, 
The Holy Spirit, every Christian is given the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a, pl- as a pledge from God. You have access to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now remember, the reason why I brought up that statistic is why do most people, over most, most is over 50, 62% of evangelicals, that's our tribe, do not believe the Holy Spirit is a person. Here's part of the reason why. Can you have a relationship with electricity? Can you talk to it? Can it guide or direct you? Does it have a personality? See, even the language we use to talk about the Holy Spirit makes it hard to comprehend. We think of the, even the word, the Holy Spirit. Now, check this out. Did you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we don't know the Father's name. Yahweh was what the Bible tells us, but that's God as a whole. The Son's name is what? What's the Holy Spirit's name? Holy Spirit. Now, this is important because think about how we talk about it. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. No one comes up to me and goes, look, it's the Jason. No one says that. No one walks up and goes, it's the Katie Tofty. It's not that there, and why? Because there are other Katie Tofties. There are like five Jason Millers in this area. Say what you want. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is, even when we put the word the, it implies that there are other Holy Spirits. Here's the thing. There are other spirits in the world. We believe that we live in a spiritual world. We believe that there are demonic forces that Satan, that he exists. We believe in the demonic realm. We believe there are spiritual forces at work behind the scenes that are directing things. But there is only one Holy Spirit. His proper name is Holy Spirit. But think about it. And you're going to hear this from me. As I talk, I've been trained for years to say the Holy Spirit. But really what I should just say is Holy Spirit. Now I can say the Spirit. Why? Because there are lots of Spirit, but there's only one the Spirit. Now why does this matter? Because if you begin to see the... See, I just did it right there. If you begin to see the Spirit, Holy Spirit, as a person who has a will, who has a desire, who has a personality, you can build a relationship with the Spirit. Now on top of that, even as we look at this understanding of a relationship with the Spirit, um, how many of you played uh, sports in high school or college? If you had a coach, if you're, let's say you're a basketball player, right? You're at the free throw line. Now, the coach can sit there before the game. Hey, hey, elevate. Okay, I played basketball, and I was a very short basketball player, but I played basketball. I was pretty good. I was pretty good. Um, so I would play basketball, but I was never trained by a coach, and so my shot was all janky, but here's the deal. I still scored. But a coach comes along, and what does a coach do? Hey, hey, adjust your elbow. You're supposed to shoot here. I shot way up here because I'm short. I had to shoot over tall people. When I shot here, they'd swap me away, right? And, and so here's the thing. A coach can come alongside of you before the game, even yell at you during the game, but does the coach give you power to shoot that ball better? No. The Holy Spirit is both a power and a person. And we can't comprehend the idea of the person of the Holy Spirit because we don't have anything comparable to it. Your coach is always outside of you. Electricity is always outside of you. But the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, the Spirit resides inside of us as a believer. And the problem is most of us are not living in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're operating out of our own gas, out of our own strength. And this is what Paul's going to talk about this morning. I want to bring us back to the text uh, from what we read last week, only just to remind us to get us where we're going. And, and let me kind of preface this. 
<coughs> excuse me, you might naturally be a loving person. How many of you are naturally loving people? You can be honest. This isn't a bragging thing. How many of you are just kind of nice? How many of you are kind people, naturally? How many c- patient people? We have anybody here who's super patient? Don't raise your hand, Brett. <laughs> I'm looking over at Brett, and he's like, not me, right? Last service, someone raised their hand, and you saw the entire family go, uh-uh. <laughs> so you have things that are in the natural. You can do naturally things that look like God, but are they from God? Are they from the different power source? Are they from your own? And here's the thing. The Holy Spirit helps those of you who are loving to go beyond being simply a loving person to loving God or to loving others or even loving yourself in the way of Jesus. The Holy Spirit acts like that hybrid, that electricity that allows you to go further than you can go in your flesh. Does that make sense? And most of us don't think about that because we've not developed a relationship with the Holy Spirit. We've not invested in the Spirit. Now, as we look at this, let me give some examples here, and this is kind of important. You often may not realize when the Spirit is moving in and through you until after the fact. Uh, Let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, I had a family that came up to me, and and, uh, after service, his wife came up and said, hey, um, you have no idea, but we had come in and had a bunch of questions for you. We weren't sure about the church, and during the service, you answered every single one of the questions you had for us. Every single question that we had that we were going to ask you about, you answered in the sermon. Now, here's the deal. I had prepped it in there, but I had no idea what God was doing that, that God needed that. Who gets the credit for that moment, Jason or the Spirit? The Spirit. I didn't realize what I was doing. That's when the Spirit is connecting to something differently. How many of you have ever been listening to a message, and the entire time you're like, did, like, did, did Jason hang out in my house and see the fight I had last night? Like, was, what's going on? How many of you ever had that moment? That's the Spirit working. That's not Jason That's not me. In that moment, that's God graciously working through me. Praise the Lord. But even when I'm not even paying attention, I may not realize that God is moving until after the fact. But I have to be willing to let the Lord do that. You have to let the Lord do that. You have to be willing to do that. And so Paul's going to come into this and talk about this. Now, here's the thing. I wish we were like a hybrid car that all of a sudden had like a dash light that went on and said, Holy Spirit mode. Boom. Yeah! Woo! Moving in the Spirit now. We don't know. We don't have that ability to see that. And so how do we know? I want you to hear this. Let's put this on the screen. It's not the lack of resource that limits the power of the believer. It's the lack of relationship, intimacy, and obedience that limits the power of the believer. It's not the lack of resource. You have the same Spirit inside of you that Jesus had to raise Him from the dead. Think about that for a moment. Jesus never healed anybody in his own power because if he did, he wouldn't be fully man. He submitted his power, so everything he did, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? When he raised the dead, that wasn't Jesus who did it. It was the Spirit through Jesus. Jesus had to limit his power because he had to be fully man and fully God. You have that same Spirit in you. Now, I'm not saying that you can go raise the dead because it's the Spirit who determines what he's going to do. If God wants to raise the dead, can he do it? Yeah. This is why I talked about my voice. If God wants to heal my voice, can he do it? Yeah. I had somebody who came up to me and said, Jason, I feel like the Lord told me that you need to sing Amazing Grace as chains are gone, then your voice is going to be healed. And I was singing it, and it didn't happen. But maybe it's not supposed to happen then. Maybe she got a word from the Lord, and it's supposed to happen later. And I have to have the, maybe I step out. Now, was she right? I don't know. If she's not, I love the heart. 
I love that she's trying to pay attention to the Lord. So let's turn in. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start off where Paul talked about last week. He says, this is verse 13. Now, I want to I encourage you, bring your Bibles. If you have a phone, that's great. I personally, I love the written word. I, I like to hold the book. Even when I read books, I don't do digital so well. But if you have your Bible, let's be a people of the book. Here we go. You, my brothers and sisters, that's family. You belong. We're called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You'll notice, Paul's not even talking about the Spirit yet, is he? He simply says, in Jesus you are set free, so even in your flesh, choose to humbly love one another. Don't use your freedom in Jesus to indulge the gas. Don't, in, don't, use, your, don't use your freedom in Jesus to do what you want, even if that means that you're trying in your own flesh to be good. I would rather see someone trying to be like Jesus and not fueled by the Spirit than somebody ignoring Jesus altogether. Because at least they're trying. But we don't have to try. We have access to the Holy Spirit. Dallas Willard said this, God is opposed to earning, not effort. Let me say that again. God is opposed to earning, not effort. There is something to be said that when we put in the effort to work out our salvation through Christ, Paul says that in Ephesians. All right, let's keep on going here. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. What happens when you live in the flesh? Sure, you can do some good things, but we tend to do a lot of flesh things, don't we? And he warns, he said, if you're going to live in your own power, you're going to end up biting and devouring each other. But you need to live in the power of the Spirit. Now listen to what he says next, 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit. So if the flesh, you have the choice, you can walk in the flesh, you can go gas-powered, or you can choose to live in the power, in, to walk, to be led by the Holy Spirit. Now you'll notice here, he actually doesn't say power of the Spirit. He says walk by the Spirit. In other words, be led by the Spirit. It's not about the power of the Spirit at this point, it's about knowing the Spirit. It's about having a relationship with the Spirit. It's about letting the Holy Spirit lead and guide you in your everyday life. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. Man, I'll tell you, there are times in my life where the flesh side of me wants to take control, and I'm in conflict with the spirit in my life. Even sometimes there are good things. How many of you have ever done things that were good, but they weren't necessarily right? <laughs> yeah. If you've ever been in a fight with your spouse... You might have been thinking that you were doing the, the right thing, the good thing, but it ultimately wasn't the best thing. It wasn't the God thing. Sometimes we make decisions in our flesh, and this is why we need the Spirit. But if you are led by the Spirit, notice that word led, that's a relationship. Only something that has a personality can truly lead you. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, I want to prepare you, and I do, I want to prepare you right now, because Paul is going to get into some things that, quite frankly, as I read them, could bring some shame for some of you. And as we read through this, I want you to hear my heart and Paul's heart and Jesus' heart. He's going to go through what the flesh looks like, what it looks like to live in the power, to be led by the flesh, to be gas-powered. And he goes through a list. Now, for you Enneagram people out there, we do some Enneagram stuff. It's a spiritual formation, personality thing. I think Paul was an Enneagram one because he loves lists. He has lists everywhere. And almost every book he writes, there's some list somewhere and he starts off by talking about the list of things that are flesh-powered. That it's the gas. It's living in the flesh. 
And as we read these and as I talk about these, you might feel that, that guilt and shame of, see, you're not worthy. And in fact, Paul even says people who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I'm going to explain what that means. But if you feel that, that twinge of shame, this is where we have the spirit as convictor and comforter. If you're a Christian, that same conviction should lead you to comfort, knowing that your sins are forgiven. And when you see that maybe there are sins you're dealing with right now, you come to the Lord and you say, God, please forgive me. I'm sorry. And know you are forgiven in Jesus' name. Amen. And we have to let the Spirit lead in that. Now, there are some, sometimes Christians do shameful things. There are things that we should be ashamed of, but we do not live in shame. The Holy Spirit convicts us of shameful things, and then we turn them over and realize they've been crucified with Christ, and now we are made new in Jesus. And so as we read these, as you hear these, you might feel that the Spirit is trying to get a hold of you, trying to get you to pay attention because the Spirit wants to set you free. Remember what I said, say, God's going to do something. God's got something. Say it with me, God's got something. God's got something for you this morning. Because I'll tell you, as I was reading through this, as I was working through this, there were sins in here that I'm like, Lord, man, I, when I'm in the flesh, I go there. Please forgive me. Okay, so he starts off, and he's going to use this really kind of what we call a junk drawer term. Now, here's what I mean by this. How many of you guys have junk drawers? You know what I'm talking about? Junk drawer is uh, it's that one drawer that you put everything that has no home, but you're like, it goes somewhere. Like, I got a deck of cards in here. I got like a battery, portable charger. Talk about being powered. That's not the Holy Spirit. I got random keys. I don't even know what they go to, but I got keys. I got band-aids. Like I got, this is a junk drawer, okay? Paul, when dealing with sin, he uses a junk drawer term. And what he's saying is, is that sins are so much more than these. And sometimes, holier than thou, legalistic Christians, moralistic Christians will come in and they'll look at a list and say, I didn't do that one. Check, check, check. And now all you're trying to do is live by another moral code. The, go the goal of the gospel of Jesus is not to make you more moral. It's to change your identity, not your behavior. Because when your behavior is centered in Jesus, you're what you, or when your identity is centered in Jesus, your behavior changes naturally. So he brings these so that you can diagnose when you're operating in the flesh, when you are being gas-powered. Does that make sense? Okay. He's going to start off by saying these sins are obvious. Now, part of the problem we have with our culture today is that we live in a world that defines what is evil and they define it as good. We see it all over the place and we see it in the church. Where things that the Bible has said, do not do these things, we now make excuses. We find ways to justify them. I'm really good at justifying sin. I'm so good. So much so that I can convince myself that he must be talking about a different sin, not this one. And so Paul's going to break down these sins of the flesh into four categories. The first are sexual sins, religious sins, relational sins, and what we call indulgent sins. Now, as I'm reading through those, if you find yourself being convicted, remember Jesus brings forgiveness and freedom. Even in that moment, you can confess it. And, and some of you right now, I feel like you're going to want to check out because that shame, that lie, that voice that says, see, you're not worthy of God. God doesn't love, love you enough to heal this. Don't believe it. Tune in, okay? Keep focused. He starts off with sexual sins. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. That word sexual immorality, if you want to cover your young one's ears, if you're not ready for them to hear mature language, um, this is actually a junk drawer Greek term, and you're, as soon as I say it, you're going to go, oh, I know what that's connected to. The word here for sexual immorality is porneia. 
And it's referring to anything that is outside the guise, outside of the bounds of biblical sexuality between a man and a woman. God has designed it. Now, before we get on our high horses, it's not any one sexual sin. It's all sexual sins. They're all equal. They're all dealing with the same issue. Now, I want to tell you, this is one of the ways, and I don't say this from a place of shame or to condemn. I want to share it because I think it's one of the ways that the world has crept in. There is a problem in the church today with sexual morality where I've met more and more couples who love Jesus. They do. They love Jesus. But they've chosen the world's way, the flesh's way when it comes to this issue. I meet a lot of couples who choose to live together outside of marriage. And obviously, if you're living together, what else are you doing there? And anybody who's done premarital counseling with me, I've always tried to be very gracious and very loving because I've got my own sin. I'll say this. Listen, here's the deal. Do you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. Okay, if you love Jesus, I'm going to give a loving challenge to you. One, if you're having sex, stop. Repent, confess, give it to the Lord. Second, if it's possible, move out. Don't, don't stay in the temptation. But it's a rampant problem in the church right now, evangelicals in particularly, of young couples saying, well, it's not a big deal. God doesn't really care. Yes, he does. But he doesn't care more about that than he does other sins. He just wants the best for you. And here's the last thing that I tell couples that are doing that. First of all, this is between you and the Lord. But secondly, you don't do it because as if you're going to get re-virginized. It's not like on your wedding day, if you abstain for six months, all of a sudden, oh, like, no, no, no. You do it because God wants your obedience, because God wants you to trust him, and God's going to bless you in different ways. Does that make sense? But let's be clear. Before we focus on one sexual sin, one people group who are doing certain things, Paul's got a much wider list for us. And I have a feeling none of us are going to walk away unscathed as we continue so Paul first, first starts off with sexual sins. David Platt says this. He's a pastor and author. Sexual sin is a major problem for many reasons. Sexual sin with another person, either physically or through other forms of pornea, grieves the Holy Spirit. It affects many others, not just the one sinning. It displays a graphic self-centeredness. It dishonors those made in the image of God. It violates God's pure plan for marriage. It is totally opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, especially love. When we read the pages of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, you're going to find that all the quote-unquote heroes, most of the quote-unquote heroes of the Old Testament, a lot of them struggled with sexual sins. David raped Bathsheba. Abraham had his own struggles with sexual sins, as did his children. See, the Bible makes it clear that this isn't a new problem. It's existed as long as humans have because we tend to put our sex and sexuality above following Jesus. And so God starts there. He then is going to get into another one, which is religious sins. And I want to be clear, these may not mean what you think they mean. Idolatry and witchcraft. Idolatry is when you put anything, a man-made image or something that you value over God. It's when you look to something other than the one who is supposed to be the source of hope and make that your hope. Let me give you an example. You want to know the best way to learn what an idol is in your life? Jesus gives us the test right now. Love the fill-in-the-blank with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you want to know what an idol is, is when you say, love your job with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your hobby with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your sex, your image, your house, even your children. Wait a second, Jason. What are you saying I'm not supposed to love my children with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? No. Your children can become an idol. So can your marriage. When you put God first, when you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you actually love your children in a healthy way. When we treat our children like little gods, they dictate our lives, and we stop being parents, we start being worshipers. 
We are not called to worship our children. We're called to parent our children. And the best way we parent is by putting God on the throne and leading by example and showing our children what it looks like to love God. Because when we love God well, we love our children better. Does that make sense? So he talks about idolatry. Andy Crouch, a very well-known uh, theologian and writer, says this, All idols overpromise and underdeliver. Every idol tells you, if you trust me, if you do this thing, it will satisfy you, and they always leave you wanting more. And ultimately, every idol demands child sacrifice. You want proof of this? You know how many marriages I've seen who've fallen apart because the husband or the wife has put God first, or their own pleasures first, or even their children first? A real problem right now in the church is you have couples who are so focused on being parents, they stop being spouses. And when the kids leave and they graduate, the parents now have nothing in common because you know what they were watering? They weren't watering their relationship in Christ, which is why we need love and respect. By the way, can I give kudos to our single and our young people who went to love and respect yesterday to learn how to do marriage before they got married? I wish I had done that when I was 19 years old. Like, that's props for stepping in and saying, I want to do this right. But what happens is, who ultimately suffers in a divorce? The children. And you know what usually causes a divorce? It's because one or both parents have set something else aside. Instead of letting God be the priority, they let something else, and it ended up sacrificing their marriage, and ultimately their children were sacrificed. Now, he then uses this next word, witchcraft. And witchcraft is interesting because... Yeah, it's a serious thing to the Lord. The purpose of witchcraft in the ancient world was to control gods or to know the future or to determine your will. It was ultimately a control issue. We have the Holy Spirit. We trust that God knows the future better than we do. When Christians dabble in things like horoscopes, mediums, crystals, uh, tarot cards, when Christians dabble in that, they are specifically saying, I don't trust God with the future. I need to know the future. I'm going to control. Why do people read horoscopes? I want to know what I should do this year. You want to know how you learn what you should do? Go to the Holy Spirit and trust the Spirit to guide. Now, I don't mean the spirits. I mean the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which means you have to have a relationship. God may not tell you the future because you can't handle the future. And sadly, there are a lot of Christians right now who are going to the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. They're leaning into things that God has said. No, there are people who are saying they love Jesus, but they're operating in the flesh by going to other spirits. If you are doing that, repent now, confess and turn back to the Lord. You are operating on gas power. You are not operating in the Spirit. Those things have no place in the kingdom of God. I, we have multiple stores in Clear Lake that are focused on New Age stuff. Ultimately, it's about control. Instead of leaning into the Holy Spirit, it's me leaning into myself and what I can control. Uh, last service, I said this, I'm praying they go out of business. No, actually, what I'm going to start praying is they become Christians, followers of Jesus. They repent and they take what was evil and make it for good. Amen? These things are gas-powered. But then Paul takes it. Now, you want to talk about one that's going to get you. This is where all of a sudden I was like, yeah. Relational sins, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy. None of us are unscathed right now. I read through that list, and, and here's the thing. Did you know that when uh, Paul talks about who pastors should be? Pastors, if they live this way, not that they stumble. Everybody stumbles. We're all human beings. We're going to struggle with the flesh. We're always going to be in that conflict. There's a difference between stumbling and struggling and living in. Pastors, if they 
embody these things, if you see more of this in me than less, I might lose my calling and qualification as a pastor. That's a hard word to hear. There have been times in my life where I've let bitterness, which is hatred and enmity, lead to conflict in me. Discord. If you're argumentative, where do you, why do you typically argue? Isn't that all the flesh? Have you ever argued in the spirit? Think about that. Every time you get into an argument, it's always two fleshes fighting at each other. If you're argumentative, jealousy. Jealousy is longing what, for what someone else has, a car, a job, a title, a house, a certain look. Fits of rage, emotional and physical outbursts of violence and anger, uncontrolled temper, selfish ambition, competitiveness, self-seeking. Selfish, selfish ambition is actually rooted in a Greek uh, word that is described as office-seeking. If you're someone who's always trying to level up to get a higher office, that's a selfish ambition. Dissension, people who go out of their way to cause conflict. I know that never happens in the church, right? There's no people who cause conflict in the church. And dissenters, people who look for it. Factions, you want to know one of the reasons why we're trying to be multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-socioeconomic church? It's because God hates factions. God hates them. They have no place in the kingdom of God. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be a Lutheran section and a Baptist section and a charismatic section. There's going to be a Jesus section. It's called the kingdom of heaven. He then goes on, and here's the last one that he brings up as far as these things is envy. If jealousy is about not having uh, what someone else has, envy is not being thankful for what you do have. When was the last time that you were thankful for the gifts that you have, the house that you have, the car that you have, the job that you have, the spouse that you have, the body that you have? I'm grateful. I have a body. I mean, it's, not, it's certainly not perfect. I mean, everybody can tell that. I'd be at least six inches taller. Paul, all of us, none of us are unscathed in this. All of us struggle with this. This isn't about struggling, it's about living in. And then he goes to indulgence sins and he says drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Now, that word orgies, we think it means one thing. It actually refers to any collection of people gathering together around excess. That's, so drunkenness can be done by yourself, but when you go to a party and a bunch of you are getting drunk, that's technically an orgy. You are giving into excess. You want to know how church... Uh, justifies uh, uh, an orgy? Potluck. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Think about it. You got 9,000 calories on your plate and you're going up for seconds. And we justify by saying, but we're doing it in Jesus' name. That's its excess. That's the flesh. We're called to be different. And then he ends with this, and here's where I want you to hear Paul's heart in this. I warn you as I did before that those who, now notice that word, live like this, not struggle with this, not stumble in this, but those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is why we have to read the Bible in context because all of us struggle with one of these things. Some of you right now, as I was reading that list, you had that little shame voice saying, that's you, that's you. You have no place in the kingdom of God. That is Satan. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If you have confessed Jesus as Lord, you are forgiven. God knows your stumbles. It's about your persistence, not your perfection. To quote, um, going back to that Dallas Willard quote, it's not about your earning. You cannot earn your salvation, but you can do the work. You can do the work of wanting to be spirit-led. This is what we're called to. How do I know that? 
Because in verses 13 and 16 of chapter 5, she says, don't use your freedom, meaning you have a choice. You have a choice to not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. And then he says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. If you are someone who is constantly being led by the flesh, it means you are choosing, you are choosing to not live in the Spirit. We can abuse our freedom in Christ because of four quick things, and they are very fast, I promise. First is ignorance. We just don't know. We don't know that there's a different way. We've not, we went to a church that didn't talk about freedom in Christ. We went to a church that focused more on morality than relationship. You just don't know. Second, apathy. This is a big one in the church. This is a big one for me. Usually when I'm giving in to sin, it's because I've grown apathetic. You no longer care about what Jesus wants and has done. Third is immaturity. When I meet a brand new Christian who's still struggling, yes, that's what they do. Babies poop themselves. They do. But when I meet a 30-year-old Christian who's been a Christian for 30 years and they've not changed at all, there's a problem. If you've been a Christian for decades and you're still drinking from the breast milk of the Spirit, you've got a problem. Those are Paul's words, not mine. We're called to grow in maturity, but it is a choice. And then the last one is resistance, where we're grieving the Holy Spirit. See, Paul is not saying that you're gonna, you, don't get the, you don't get the kingdom of God if you do any of these things. It's if you live in these things, if you daily choose them. Because if you're daily choosing it and it's now a way of life, you don't want Jesus as Lord. You actually don't want heaven. Because heaven is where Jesus is king. But Paul doesn't stop there. He moves into the fruit of the Spirit, life in the Spirit. What does it look like? When you have grounded yourself in the Holy Spirit, you are building a relationship with the Spirit as a person, not as some force. You're learning from the Spirit. You're being empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit naturally produces something in you. You can't help it. So listen, here it is, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, which is another word is forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law. When I was younger, I used to think, and because of what I was taught, is like love is a banana. I just need more banana in my life. And joy is an orange. And grapes are, uh, you know, they're patience. But no, it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's one fruit. The fruit of the one thing, the one thing, all those things come up at the same time. You're not somebody who goes, well, I just need more of the, the love of the Spirit. No, you need all of it. But when the flesh comes in, we resist what the Spirit wants to do. But here's why I love this illustration. This is from Tim Keller. He's way smarter than I am, so I'm going to quote him. He says this, the, the, the reason why Paul uses the fruit metaphor is for four reasons. First, it's gradual. Fruit doesn't just appear, it takes time. It's a slow process. I don't understand corn. I don't. It's like magic to me. I'm there like one day, there's nothing. And then like a week later, it's like 9,000 feet tall. And I don't understand. I know farmers do. I don't get it. Why? Because it's a gradual process, but it's still happening. It's there. One minute it's not there. All of a sudden it seems like it's just magic. But no, there was a process going all along. Second, healthy trees inevitably bear fruit. They just do. It's what they do. If you are living in the Spirit, you will bear Spirit, fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Third, it's internal. It starts at the roots. Now the problem is we tend to see spiritual, spiritual gifts as the evidence of the Spirit, but the Bible does not. You'll notice what's not in this list. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, 
healing. There was an entire church that they had all the spiritual gifts, but they lacked all the fruit of the Spirit, which means you can have spiritual gifts and not be living a Spirit-filled life. We are focusing on the wrong thing when we focus on the gifts. We're called to focus on being in the Spirit and letting the Spirit produce those things in us that we become more like Jesus. Does that make sense? Lastly, is their symmetrical meaning they grow together. What crushes them is our flesh. It's our flesh grieving them, getting in the way. You'll notice that love is the first thing mentioned in this list, just like sex was the first thing listed in the, fir in the, in the first list. It's a contrast. Real Christ-like, spirit-fueled love is sacrificial, not selfish or self-serving. That's why Paul puts them back-to-back -back or next to each other. God wants to move us from being gas-powered to spirit-powered. So what does it mean to be spirit-powered in love? It's sincere love for God, others, and self. You can be a loving person, but are you loving them the way Jesus has called you to love them? Are you loving them as Christ loved them? Joy, a, satisfaction, a satisfying joy found in Jesus, not in your circumstances. Peace with God through Jesus' work on the cross. You become a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. Patience for difficult people in difficult times. Trust me, man, people need to be patient with me. They do. And sometimes I need the Spirit's patience to really have patience. Now, this is a good one because we, our entire vision as a church is actually rooted in this word, goodness. It's where we get our word tov. Tov, we want to be a church who doesn't just do good, but brings God's goodness into the world around us. Love and respect yesterday brought goodness. When we worship, we're bringing goodness. We want to bring God's goodness out of the overflow of his kindness, but we want it spirit-led, spirit-fed. Faithfulness. Now, I'm going to give a challenge to every Christian in here because Christians should be the most faithful people in the world. And what does faithfulness mean? It means you do what you say you're going to do. There's a trend in our world today where I'll commit, hey, yeah, I'm going to do dinner, and then something better comes along. I see this happen in Christians all the time. Church is a big one. You want to know why I go to church? It's partly in faithfulness. Just as God has been faithful to me, I want to be faithful to Him, but I also want to be faithful to you. What would happen if one Sunday I just decided I wanted to sleep in? Well, Jason, that's your job. No, it's not. It's my calling. I don't do this because it's my job. I do it because it's my calling. I do it because I believe I'm called to the body of Christ to elevate and help you become the church that God has called you to be just as you're helping me become the man God has called me to be. Does that make sense? And so it's a real temptation when people all of a sudden go, man, it's just easier to sleep in. It is. It is, which is why Paul goes into self-control. What is self-control? Self-control is through the Spirit, you being convicted. There are times you know you should do something and you choose not to. Why? Because it's easier to operate in the, in the flesh, to be gas-powered than spirit-powered. But when you make that choice in obedience to do the thing that the Spirit's leading you to, God moves. That's what God wants us to. We need these things. We need gentleness. When you live this way, you don't need God's laws because the laws limit our failures while the Spirit brings our flourishing. I want to invite the band up, and I want to share one last illustration here. See, think of the Spirit. I've told you, we all have the Spirit in us. Every person here, if you are a Christian, you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have the Holy Spirit. That means you have the power of the Spirit in you. I asked Sean Putman, who is um, one of our local volunteer firefighters, can we give it up for our firefighters and our EMT? Thank you for the work you do. So I asked him for a, a nozzle for a fire hose. I really wanted to get a fire hose too, and I was going to spray it. And then I was like, these people would be really upset, as would all those people <laughs> and those people. 
So think of it this way. If this is attached to a hose, right, it has all the power directly in it. It's accessible. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have that spirit that gives you all of the fruit of the spirit. But just like this fire hose, how do I limit the, the source? How do I limit the power by pulling back or up? I don't know which direction it is, but whichever direction it is that limits the power, what is that? Well, that's sin. Flesh gets in the way of being spirit-led. You have the spirit in you. Can I get some background stuff just, just playing behind me? That's great. The spirit, you have the spirit. You do. It's a promise. God gave it to you. But there are sins in that sin or that lack of relationship. Every time you move in sin and disobedience, what you're doing is you're dampening. You're affecting the spirit's power in your life. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something brave this morning. Okay, and I realize it's uncomfortable for some of you. But I'm going to ask you, be brave. If you're listening and you're going, you know what, I've been living in my own power. I need to repent. I need to give this to the Lord. If there's a sin that came up in mind to you, maybe a sin that you've been living in, maybe it's pornography, maybe you're having an affair, maybe it's drunkenness, maybe it's anger, maybe it's bitterness, people-pleasing, whatever it is, I'm going to invite you. If you feel, if you know that you need more, you need to live in the Spirit, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I know it's brave. Don't look at the person next to you. If you know, and here's the thing, if you don't feel it, don't stand up. This isn't one of those things like, oh my gosh, I'm going to look so arrogant if I don't stand. No. If you know, if there's something that's come up that you're going, I know I need it. If you don't feel it, don't stand. Please don't. Don't be fake with the Lord. But if you're saying, I need this, I want you to do me a favor. Close your eyes right now. I want you to picture what that thing is that's holding you back, that thing that's getting in the way of life in the Spirit. And I want you to pray with me. Say these words. Lord Jesus, help me. I surrender. I've been living in the flesh. Holy Spirit, I need you. I have you. I want you. Set me free. Lord, I'm sorry. I confess my sin. Help my unbelief. And now hear these words right now. I want you to hear this. In the name of Jesus, live in the power of the Spirit. Spirit, set fire right now. There are people in each one of these rows right now, there are people who desperately need a new source of power. You have the Holy Spirit. And it's the, some people may feel a tingle. You may feel nothing. Don't think it's a feeling. It's not about a feeling. It's about a fruit. And if there are things in your life, you need to know that you are forgiven in the name of Jesus. You are healed in the name of Jesus. And, and you're struggling. This is the first step. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture that sin and I want you to picture it dying on the cross with Jesus. Once you have that sin, once you have that flesh moment, raise your hand as an act of surrender. Don't raise it as a like, I got it. No, it's an act of surrender. Once you see it, lift it high. This is an act of worship. It is a declaration, Jesus, this is yours. Once you have it. Now we're going to come and worship. Yeah, we're going to take our tithes and our offerings, but this is more than that. No, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up as an act of worship. We're going to sing and we're going to worship. We're going to give we're going to give ourselves surrender to the Spirit now. Let God do something new in you. Let Him breathe life in you. Let Him bring power that you've never, you've never felt. If you're feeling dry right now, let the water flow. Let the river flows of the Holy Spirit move in and through you. And as we come to bring our tithes and offerings, man, it's not about money. It's about life. Let's come and worship the Lord. Let's surrender. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's come and worship.